0: The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit for participation in this activity, or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at AUAU. .auanet.org. Support for this activity is provided by independent educational grants from Astellas, Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, Inc., Genentech, Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Merck, and Pfizer, Inc. Well, good afternoon. My name is Dr. Jay Raman, and I'm the chair of education for the American Neurologic Association. I'd like to welcome our audience to another one of our sessions in the AUA University Educational Podcast Series. And the show title for today's program is insight into race, shared decision-making, and the impact on access to quality care. It's really my pleasure to have two esteemed colleagues and guests today, Dr. Randy Vince Jr. and Dr. Willie Underwood. Dr. Randy Vince is an SUO fellow at the University of Michigan and has a master's degree in computational medicine and bioinformatics. He has a keen interest in the use of precision medicine to combat the concept of racial biology and evaluating the intersectionality of environmental exposures and gene expression. Uh, Dr. Willie Underwood serves as the director of the Buffalo Center for Health Equity and volunteer clinical associate professor at the University of Buffalo. Uh, He's received several uh, awards and honors, including the AUA Rising Star Award, the Robert Wood Johnson Harold Amos Medical Career Development Award, just to name two of his more salient accomplishments. His research interests include, but are not limited to racial disparities in diagnosis, treatment, and survival of urologic cancers. Our program today has three learning objectives. Uh, The first is to review the concept of racialization and the resulting societal impact. The second, to discuss the steps of shared decision making as outlined by the Agency for Health Research and Quality, Healthcare Research and Quality. And the third learning objective, examine the impact of preconceived notions around race on treatment and recommendations. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you very much again for your time. And it's really my pleasure to have you uh, both here with me this afternoon. Uh, Randy, maybe we'll start off by uh, just a, a broad question, which is, Maybe explain to me and and the audience this concept of what what is racialization and and how does that maybe tie into racial biology?
1: Yeah. So thank you uh, for the opportunity to be here. So the concept of racialization actually comes back to um, slavery. Uh, And so, you know, one of the things that I constantly tell people is there was a a fundamental um, disagreement with some of the founding documents of our country, specifically around freedom and liberty for all all people. Um, And so, you know, you can't have freedom and liberty for all people, but also have enslaved folks. So the racialization actually came about to distinguish a difference between those people who are enslaved and those people who are free. So essentially those black citizens or black people and the difference between them and white people. And so as a way to perpetuate this concept, there were, you know, a, a lot of stereotypes that were promoted, uh, around uh, about black people. Uh, and then this also led to the concept of eugenics where, you know, people were able to say, oh, black people are not the same type of human as whites. So this justified the mistreatment that, uh, actually occurred. And so this concept of racialization uh, actually was, you know, the, founding, the foundation for um, a lot of the things that we discuss around racial biology.
0: And, and Willie, maybe you, you can elaborate a little bit on this concept of racial biology and, and maybe exploitation. Um, how is that sort of fit into the, the whole, you know, medical mistrust and, and the perception of uh, uh, racial minorities uh, on on medical care and medical uh, uh, decision-making?
2: First, I want to say thank you very much for doing this, to the AUA and to, and to you, Jay, this is awesome. And Randy, you laid that out very well. So just just quickly, so let's just look at sort of prostate cancer. And, and so when I finished my fellowship and I published some of the first work looking at racial outcomes and the treatments received for prostate cancer, And when I was giving those presentations, one of the things that came up over and over again was that Black men do not want to receive treatment for prostate cancer because they're more concerned about erectile function than they are about dying from prostate cancer. Now, that was interesting. There was no literature to support that at all. Zero literature. But however, that was an overwhelming belief, right? Now, when you looked at the the, the CMS data on treatments received, Of those who are in in Medicare participants, 64 most common procedures, Blacks were less likely to receive 60 of them, and only more likely to receive four of them, and one of them was orchiectomies. So I said, Mm -hmm. wait a minute, Black men do not want to get prostatectomies or receive radiation for treatment of prostate cancer because they're worried about erectile dysfunction, but when they get metastatic disease, it's okay to cut off their testicles? Something about that doesn't make sense, right? So when you talk about racialization of ideas and concepts and biology, these, sub, these things have been taught for hundreds of years. They come out in very unusual, unexpected ways, and that's one of them. And sometimes it contradicts things that we actually believe even and things that even make sense to us as physicians.
1: And can I just piggyback off of that really quickly and I think <laughs> Willie just highlighted something that was extremely important and that it, the racialization actually led to a stereotype about black men and that stereotype was hypersexualization right and so that black men were hypersexual so that way they would put erectile function um, as a higher priority than that cancer treatment which we just know isn't true.
0: So, so, so then, I mean, if we want to use your analogy, Willie, will you just take the prostate cancer and the treatment of prostate cancer, um, maybe take me through, uh, you know, so, so that to me seems like perhaps, a, you know, if you want to look at the whole concept of shared decision-making, maybe a failure in shared decision-making, right? Uh, uh, not understanding, you know, the left hand and the right hand, right? What we're recommending as is, is medical professionals and what we're perceiving is important for patients, there's a disconnect. So maybe tell me a little bit or take me through the, some of the thought process of this preconceived notions and, and race and decision-making.
2: So, so when we sit down with anyone, right, we, we, if we bring to the table consciously or subconsciously ideas about those individuals, then we don't say things, don't connect in ways that allows us to get to where we would normally receive get to, if we actually had a different idea and concept with the person, right? So let's use something that has nothing to do with neurology. If someone comes in and they're a smoker, right? And in my mind, I think, ah, they're never gonna quit smoking. So therefore I don't even bring it up. I don't even talk to them about it. Right? Now, what, what I'll know is that maybe that they were, that was an opportune time to discuss smoking with them because their brother, just died of lung cancer, right? Or is dying of lung cancer. And they may be looking for an opportunity for someone to help them quit smoking, right? So, so, but if I don't, so you see where I'm going here? So so, these preconceived notions and concepts prevent us from doing things that we normally would do. So if I believe that someone won't, won't treatment for prostate cancer, and then they start asking me questions that, and I interpret those questions differently than where the question really is going here's an example doc when you operate on me and the cancer is everywhere um what are you going to do then it's like oh they believe airspace cancer so therefore they're not going to want surgery compared to saying well what are you asking me i'm not really sure what you're asking here are you asking that that you have metastatic cancer already and when i operate on you and i find it what am i going to do or you or are you asking me that once I open you up and the air hits the cancer, it's going to spread right now. Now we're connecting. Right. And the patient answers that question for me. Now we're having a dialogue and a discussion and we're moving toward a direction. Now, I'm not trying to convince them to have surgery or not have surgery. But what I am doing is making sure that they have the information necessary to make a decision that fits into their values Right, but if preconceived notion blocks me from having that dialogue with them, then I've failed as a physician. And to do what we have all written on our on our personal statements when we applied to medical school, and that was, I want to be a doctor to help people. So then I failed to help them. So, so Randy, tell what what are
0: your thoughts? Okay, if, if we have this failure to Implement shared decision making, uh, predicated in part on 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 race. So, um, what are the implications for the patients with regards to their health literacy? Uh, maybe expand on that concept a little bit of, of you know the shared decision making, as Willie sort of alluded to, and and how we translate that to uh, patients, their education, their ability to make uh, an informed decision. Um, I would like your thoughts.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think, so to touch on shared decision-making a little bit more for um, those who will listen to this podcast, I, I, I think the way that the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, which is under the Department of Health and Human Services, lays it out, this approach is, you know, something that at, as providers, we should strive to implement in practice, and they have this SHARE approach, which is an acronym for Seek Patient Participation. So Willie touched on that. Help your patient uh, explore and compare all treatment options. So that means you have to discuss all treatment options that are evidence-based with your patient. Then assess their patient's values and preferences, which doesn't happen many times. Uh, Reach a decision with your patient and then evaluate the decision. So many times I tell, you know, my patients, if you walk out of here and you don't understand all of your treatment options, then I have not done my job appropriately. And part of that means that I have to know exactly, you know, what those treatment options are and how to explain them in a way that you can understand. And even to take that a step further, you know, we always talk about universal precautions when it comes to like healthcare safety, but they recommend a universal precautions with, uh, actual shared decision making. So that means that you don't make assumptions about anyone. You treat everyone the exact same and assume that they have the exact same level of education and you deep and you take a deep dive into explaining that, uh, whatever those treatment options are. And then again, because you are now allowing your patient to participate in the, in the discussion, assessing their values and preferences, now they start to understand not only what treatment options are, what their disease status is, but they also uh, start to trust you more, right? That's what the evidence shows. And so, you know, all of those things, that it, it impacts health literacy and it impacts the ultimate uh, trust that a patient has in a provider.
0: So, you know, one of the challenges, and, and you know, I'd ask you both this question, I, and I don't know what the answer is, but I'm sure you both in clinical practice uh, are well aware, and you notice that there is uh, increasingly a premium on on uh, efficiency, productivity, right? Uh, the The office visits are X number of minutes long. The clinics are a certain number of patients a day. And so Randy, you, you know your your point, which is a really excellent one, is you can go through a 15 minute office visit and it's 15 minutes, but whether or not that patient, has grasped what you're describing, whether they understand the concept. So how do you to incorporate this really important concept of making sure you have a, a patient who is, you know, literate of their options and is part of the decision making process with the constraints of what we face in in our day to day practices, which are hustling and bustling. How do you implement that? And to both of you for your thoughts.
1: Yeah, so I'll Willie, I'll I'll defer to you to go first if you and I can follow up if you want, or I can go first either way.
2: No, no. So, so it's it's interesting from you know my experiences over the last twenty years have been you can connect with people a lot faster than you think, okay. And once you sort of get to the goal, learn how to explain things and make the connections. Yes, you will have a a certain subset of your patients, regardless of race, that will still leave your office. They won't understand, but they won't be able to make a decision. That's a different set of people. And in that setting, you reschedule an appointment at a later time, this, that, and the other, or they may not, they may come in and be emotionally not ready to even hear the information. And if you're connecting with them, you'll assess that right away. I've had people come in and, and I can't even talk to them. I mean, I can, but I understand where they are emotionally. So I'll give them a little information, give them a booklet or something and say, let's reschedule this. And by the way, bring someone else with you, right? Because they just got hit with prostate cancer over the head and now they're, they're freaking out. Right. And I recognize that that's a part of my job. Right. So now having said that, so what about the ones I know I got cancer, I'm coming to see you doctor and they're ready. Okay. Right. You don't have to spend hours with them. Okay. You just, once you have a process of how to walk people through the decisions and how to uh, look at them and see when they're understanding you, when they're not understanding you, have a process of having people repeat things back to you, right? Like a dialogue, the same thing I do, you know, with others about other topics, right? And then you say, oh, okay, great. And what you'll see, yes, you got 15 minutes, you got 20 minutes, you got a half an hour. But that 15, 20 half an hour would be more meaningful for you and more meaningful for them and their families.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with what Willie just said. It doesn't take a long time to connect with someone. And then, you know, what he was sitting on that teach back, right, like having a patient walk you through everything you just told them to make sure that they grasp and understand, you know, all of the treatment options as well as their disease status, Um, you know, that's essential for these patients. Um, and, you know, again, that process in itself actually helps improve health literacy and it improves trust in the provider.
0: So, so I, I think you both highlighted some really good methods, you know, just in this whole concept of health literacy. And I think uh, both really highlighted that, you know, one could argue it's the quality of the time spent, not necessarily the quantity mm-hmm. of the, the time spent. So so maybe take me a step further, which is how how does this health literacy itself sort of better impact our healthcare utilization Uh, just across, you know, uh, not just our organization, but but across, you know, societal uh, considerations?
1: Yeah. um, Willie, you want me to take this first? (laughs) I'm more than happy to. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, um, I I think a good place to start is, uh, you know, I I went back, and I was, you know, for a recent talk, and I was reviewing some literature and text that was put out by the Institute of Medicine. um, And they actually published a piece, and it was called uh, a prescription to end confusion. Um, And, you know, Oh, excuse me. It was called health literacy, a prescription to end confusion. And I think the way that they surmised um, everything in terms of health literacy uh, was just, you know, uh, spot on. And I'll quote it. And it said, efforts to improve quality, reduce costs and reduce disparities cannot succeed without simultaneous improvements in health literacy. Mm -hmm. And so the reason they say that is because study after study has shown low health literacy is associated with poor health outcomes and poor utilization of the healthcare system so you know that includes fewer visits to your primary care physician higher rates of going to the emergency department um, even if you have surgery higher 30-day readmission so all of these things you know can be combated by improving health literacy which again shows that the the interconnection of so many of the topics that we're discussing today, um, whether it's you know kind of eliminating those um, biases that we may have internally about people based off of their you know um, their, the way they so, uh, socially classify themselves. Um, when it comes to the process of shared decision making and making sure that we explain things properly uh, and explain how to use the healthcare system, actually, um, the treatment recommendations, all of these things are interconnected and they all play a role in health literacy, which ultimately impacts a patient's a- access to healthcare um, and how to use the healthcare system.
2: Excellent point. So I'm just going to add to that. So, you know, our fellows, when I was at my previous institution, they would always ask me, they would say, man, how do you get all your patients to do what you need them to do post-op? Right. If I need them to walk, I need them to use the incentive spirometer. Or all that. I mean, how do you get them to do that? Cause we're discharging other patients and they haven't walked yet. They haven't done anything. And I say, cause they understand the importance of it. Right. And it, and I don't spend longer times with patients than anyone else, but I make sure I'm not just going to say, I need you hey, you got to walk. Right. Okay. walk out the room. No, I'm going to, I need to, you to understand why. I'm asking you to do five laps every hour, uh-huh. right? 15 on the incentive barometers. And I'm clear, I don't say walk, five laps, right? 15, and this is why, this is how you're gonna feel. This is what we're gonna do. This is our group way of getting to where we wanna go. You wanna go home, I want you to go home. You don't want a complication, I don't want you to have a complication. So this is how we reach our shared goal. Right now that I have that same conversation with someone if they had three graduate degrees or dropped out of school in kindergarten. OK, none of that matters. It's the same conversation. Explain the exact same way to receive to get to the exact same goal. Right. So. But that's so it doesn't matter. Right. And these are sort of but these trainings, we don't get as physicians. Right. And we're very smart people. And we don't know terms like the course of no, the curse of knowledge. What's the curse of knowledge? Once you have some information in your mind. Right. You can't remember what it was like when you didn't have that information. Right? So we know things that they don't know. And we can't imagine what it's like to not know it. So when we say, hey, I need you to walk. and and walk out the room, there's some assumptions going on in our mind that we believe that they heard. And that was, I need you to walk five laps an hour. This is why the nurses may not want to get you up, but I need you to get up. That, I mean, all these things that we believe that they heard, but they didn't because all they really heard was what we said. And that was, I need you to walk.
0: Yeah. So I think you you hit on a really key point, which is this this relationship between health literacy and, and trust. Right. I mean, essentially, you know, trust in what you are not assumptions, but trust in what or the or lack of trust, distrust. If you if you if you look at the converse. So, Randy, just sort of tie in for me, you know, the sort of building off of Willie's point was this concept of health literacy and 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 the trust relationship with the patient. I think is analogy of of the same discussion with somebody with college degrees mm-hmm. and, and somebody who has, you know, just a high school education, um, it seems like it's using a common thread in vocabulary to bridge this this knowledge base for the patients. But maybe talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, again, I, Willie said it, he put it, you know, very eloquently. It, it's, and that's one, one of the things I touched on earlier about the universal precautions when it comes down to um, shared decision making. Because one of the things that we had in that process was actually having patient participation and you know what and when you have patient participation you incorporate a patient's values and preferences now that patient starts to feel heard um, and they feel like they're a part of the discussion and that helps build trust right and so that's why you know you can have these conversations with patients and they all listen to what hes say, what he's actually saying and recommending because they trust dr underwood to give them the right recommendations and they trust that he has their best interests at heart because he's actually listening right he's actively listening and engaging them um, and so you know again all of that helps improve health literacy it impacts trust and to take that another step further i think majority of the time within our health systems, you know, I, and I, I know this might be a little provocative for some people. The system is broken because we don't really do a lot of community outreach or community engagement. And so even though some of our you know most prestigious hospitals and health systems are in areas that are within inner cities with large disparities, there, there, there there's a disconnect. Um, outside of, and I'm their walls, and I'm not just speaking about the you know physical barriers uh, uh, that exist at the hospital, there seems to be a wall between the actual organization and the community that surrounds it. And so if we really want to go about improving health literacy, improving trust, then we cannot separate that from actually getting out to the community, meeting people where they are, being more empathetic and understanding, and then actually that outreach and engagement will help bring people in. And again, all of these things are interconnected.
0: So you're, you're kind of touching on the last point really nicely that, that I think, you know, we wanted to cover, which is how, how do you tie all this back into access? Right. So, so, I mean, Randy, you, you highlighted that, you know, it's fine if you have all of these resources, but at the end of the day, if there's not access for the population, whether you going out or them coming into your healthcare system, then it's still a system failure at the end of it all. So how, you know, how do we actually improve the access when you think about race and shared decision making, which we've talked about, clearly, they must have an impact on access. How do we tackle that challenge? And for either of you?
1: Yeah. Um, Willie, you want,
2: yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah. Cause you, okay. cause so something you said, it was very important early on. You mentioned, you talked about that, that we're really talking about quality and cost and outcomes. Right. So, so, and, and for me, like, like anything, I go back to my football days. Um, I'm on the 10 yard line. I want to be in the goals. I want to be in the goal line. How do I march down the field? Right. What plays I'm going to move to get to that goal? when we look at health outcomes and we look at community and and all these things, population health, we sort of say, how do we go from where we are today to where we wanna be tomorrow? Some politics are local, some things are local, but the truth of the matter is, right, look, if if I know that that community over there, the majority, majority of them have jobs that they can't take off, right? they'll be fired. Okay. Right. Number one, they, they don't, they're not like us that if we can go to the doctor's office right now and we'll still get paid, they go to the doctor's office, they won't get paid. So, if, so if all my offices and clinics are only open during that time, then they don't have access, even if the clinic is right next door to them. Okay. Right. So when they have a problem, they're going to go to the emergency room. So I said, wait a minute, I need to sort of look at this population and set up a system that works for them the same way we would do if we had a restaurant right if we had a restaurant and people could only come to us between 5 and 10 i wouldn't open up at 6 in the morning and close at 4 30 that was not gonna make any sense i would be out of business okay right so if we look at it that way we can make changes that actually work for improving the health of that population I'm not telling you what those changes should be. That's all local, but we view it as a way, this is my goal. How do we achieve that goal? And let's put the processes in place that gets us to where we want to go. Let's march down the field together.
1: Absolutely. I I completely agree. And I mean, we see this in so many different Areas of healthcare, right? Like, you know, I'll just throw one out there clinical trials and, you know, the accessibility of clinical trials. You know, we know that, again, those people who can't take off or, you know, who might not have as much money, they don't have the same access to clinical trials as those who are wealthy and privileged. Um, you know, and the same, it, it could be because of distance, it could be because of costs, it could be because those trials are just not discussed with them. Like, again, this goes, but this is a system issue, right? Like, it starts there. There and then it matriculates down into the provider level, but you know until we actually get serious about tackling these systemic issues, um, because it's all again I keep saying this, it's all interconnected. Um, we will we'll continue to find ourselves at this same spot we're at now. So we have to get serious about tackling those systemic issues, um, so that way we can again disseminate it down to the provider level.
2: So one of the I, things I want to seeing... wanna... oh, oh go ahead sorry. Let me just—I want just want to tell this this story. uh, But go ahead. I'm—I'll let you ask your question. No, no. Go ahead. Story. Go ahead, Willie. So, so, so I was giving a talk, and um, uh, and 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 someone says, "Well, well, black people—they don't just want to come here. They don't care about their their health care this than the other." And I said, "Hmm." At the end of at the you know the Japanese makers wanted to sell cars in the United States. I said, however, people in my mother's generation said, we're not going to buy these cars. We're all, we're buying American cars. So they didn't say, well, the reason they don't want to buy cars is that because of them, they, they hired a, a firm and they said, tell us how to sell cars to black people in the United States, period. And that's what they did. Now, mm-hmm. I've, never owned, I've never owned an American car. I've only owned foreign cars, right? One generation later. Right. So you think about that. If you just look at it that way, a health system is a product, sells a product, and that product is healthcare. And if the people don't want to buy your product, you don't blame them. You blame you and you figure out how to sell it to them
0: that's great that's that's a that's a fabulous analogy that's yeah. uh, so so you know one of the things we're seeing you know whether it's the AUA or or any other organizations is it's a lot of uh this uh the, the DEI initiatives right and and one of the goals here with a lot of these missions is is you know feeding the pipeline of um underrepresented minorities to go into healthcare mm-hmm. and and i'm wondering if you both could talk a little bit about this concept of um if you have say, you know, I'll use the word racially concordant physician, but, but the impact of that on the care that we're able to deliver um, particularly in, in minority populations.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, so, you know, I when I when I have these discussions, I always like to cite a little bit of data because, you know, I don't want people to think that these are just my opinions and they're, you know, um, just how I see the world, but it's backed by data. And so there was a study actually in uh, JNCI that actually looked at this and saw that the quality of care was higher for black patients when they saw a racially concordant physician. And so, you know, that begs the question, we don't practice a different type of medicine, right? Like, you know, we all learn the same things in medical school, so why is the quality of care so much better when black patients see a racially concordant uh, physician? And uh, again, uh, at the the risk of sounding like a broken record, that shows how these things are interconnected. Many of the things we talked about, right? So it's that process of actually having patient participation actually engaging with patients and having them feel like they're a part of the conversation and then the increased health literacy all of those things because now they're going to show up for appointments right they're not going to blow them off because they know the importance of it they'll show up for screening they'll show up for imaging because you have properly described everything to them. They understand the importance of it. And so now they'll come into the system to, you know, and they know how to navigate the system. So again, all of these things are interconnected and that actually leads to a better quality of care.
2: Yes, you're absolutely right. And, and we know they're looking at multiple studies and multiple disease states. So let's look at maternal um, um, mortalities and, and, and with, with deliveries. We know that it's better when, when women have an OBGYN that, that's of race concordance, a black patient, black physician, right? And and some of that is something as simple as this. So when I was a, a resident, um, we had people come in who had uh, prostatitis and uh, epididymitis, and and they, they would come back six weeks later, follow a visit, and they hadn't taken their medication. And a lot of residents got frustrated, and this is oh, first, I'm a you know, first year resident, and they're getting frustrated and stuff. I don't understand why they didn't take their medication, and da 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 da. So, you know, I, I go in there and talk to the guy, and I just asked him. I said, "Hey, um, you know, you, you, I'm confused." I said, "Look, you, you, you came in, you got diagnosed, you got a prescription, you came back for your follow-up visit, but you didn't take your medication in the interim." And he said, yeah, because it was $150 and I didn't have it. So I came here today hoping you can prescribe something else. And I was like, wow, okay, here's a simple fix. Tell you what we're going to do. We're going to give each patient two prescriptions because one medication will work a third of the time, but it's $14. The other one will work most of the time and it's $150. So what I want you to do is take this first script and I wrote one-on-one Two on the other. Take the first grip get it, try it. If you're not better in a week, I need you to figure out how to get this second one filled. Okay, right? Now, what that did that eliminated that 100%. I'm not making that up. 100%. Now, I was no different than the other residents, but except for this case, I knew how it felt to be broke, in pain, suffering. Needy, needing something that you cannot afford. So when they said that, I said, oh, I got it. That makes sense to me. Let's come mm-hmm. up with another plan that actually works for them. Yep. That's what happens when you have a shared, it's called a shared experience. And those shared experience allows you to see the world through their eyes because of the shared experience. Now, that did not make me smarter, but it did have an impact on the outcomes that that those men had.
0: No, it's great. So, so I guess, you know, we've got about uh, one or two minutes left. What, what have I not asked you to, I mean, this is really, uh, uh, I'm delighted that that we've embarked on on such an important podcast like this. But is there something that I feel like, or you feel like, more importantly, that the audience should take away from this that we haven't covered yet in, in this podcast?
1: Yeah, I, so I, I can... I'll I'll give a personal story. Um, I was talking to um, someone who I considered a friend from medical school, um, who was he's a white man from, you know, small town in Louisiana. And, you know, we were exchanging words about, you know, different things that were going on within the country. And he told me that, you know, black people and white people culturally are just different. And, you know, this was, again, someone who I thought was a friend, and, you know, I wouldn't call him a friend now after this conversation, obviously, but I think everyone just needs to take away that, you know, there's no one group that has cultural superiority over the other. We all want to live long, healthy lives. We all want our loved ones to live long, healthy lives. We want to be happy. We want to have the freedoms to move around and do the things that we enjoy. So, you know, if you have a preconceived notion about someone based off of their culture, please let that go because, um, you know, they enjoy the same things you enjoy. It might not be specifically the exact same music, but I can guarantee you the things that are very important to you and that you hold in high priority, they hold those same things in a high priority for them as well.
2: Yeah, I want to second that because that's, that's the basis of, of everything we're talking about. And that is that this understand that we all want the same things uh-huh. you know, and, and how we process those in our minds may be different based upon our experiences. But in the, in, in the end, we all want to live. We all want to live long. We want our relatives to live long, as Randy right? said we all want an education. We all want wealth and prosperity. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. So. So. And our goal as as physicians You know, again, we said, the majority of us said when we applied to medical school, the same thing. I want to be a doctor because I want to help people. So what we have to ask ourselves every time the patient leaves the room, did I help them? Are they better off because I'm their doctor? And if the answer is no, then I got two choices to make. One Make some changes that make that true. They are better off because I'm their doctor, or help them get another doctor. Right. That's all I ask. Yes, right. Because we all said, "I want to be a doctor to help people." So let's help people. That's great. Well,
0: I, I really want to, you know, first of all, you know, thank our audience for their time. Uh, very grateful to both uh, Dr. Randy Vince and Dr. William Underwood for their thoughtfulness uh, and uh, insight. Um, and I would encourage all of you uh, for more information to please visit uh, auanet.org university. And, and to both of you, thank you uh, very much. And I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing more that we can offer on the AUA front uh, in these important topic areas.
2: Absolutely, and thank you for the opportunity.